Hello everyone. We are still in Psalms, starting chapter 6 today, verses 1 through 10, for the choir director with stringed instruments upon an eight-string lyre, a Psalm of David. It is interesting to see that some of these were meant to be played on specific instruments. Psalm 5 was meant to have a flute included in the song, while this psalm wanted stringed instruments, specifically a lyre. This psalm seems to be asking for relief from discipline. In the same petition, the author warns his enemies that they would soon be put to shame. This is considered by many to be a penitential psalm, but there is no confession of sin or a prayer of forgiveness, so we should probably consider this a lament psalm. Verse 1. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. David begins his psalm asking for mercy. He asks God to relieve him of the discipline he was receiving. God is completely in the right to judge us. He is holy, and we are sinful. Being a good father, he disciplines us. David makes no specific confession of sin. He also knows God is not wrong in his judgment, and so just pleads for relief. Verses 2 and 3. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed, and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? David wanted relief from the suffering. He also prayed for healing on top of the relief from pain. Bones were considered in that time to be the foundation of the person. So to say that his bones were dismayed meant that he was in pain down to the very core. He was also seemingly depressed. His soul was greatly dismayed, possibly because of the pain and the length of time he was in pain. David asks how long it would be before this physical and emotional relief would come. He longed for God's healing. And many of us ask the same question, when will we be relieved of our pains and trials? We can be assured of one thing, death is coming and after that point, eternity begins. If you are God's child, this means joy everlasting in a perfect body that never deteriorates, in a sinless environment with perfect people surrounding us, ruled by our awesome Savior King. Verses 4 and 5. Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness, for there is no mention of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? David gives God two reasons why he should heal him. First, David appeals to God's character. God is kind and loving to all, but especially to his kids. Second was because if he died, there would be no one to hear him give thanks. Some believe that the latter part of verse 5 means that we will cease to exist when we die. Sheol is the word for grave. Another way to explain this verse is to say that when we die, we can no longer praise God on the physical earth with those around us to hear us and be encouraged to praise as well. Remember that David did not have the entire Bible. In fact, he was writing some of it. Also, we know that the rest of the word teaches against that concept. The Old Testament puts an emphasis on the present life because it is where we will decide whether to follow or rebel against God. We do not cease to exist when we die. We live on. The question is where? Verses 6 and 7. I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away from grief. It has become old because of my adversaries. 
David uses imagery to show the depth of his suffering. And we can see it throughout the verse, weary from sighing. He's crying so much every night to make his bed swim. He dissolves his couch with how many tears he has. His eyes are wasted away with how much grief he has. These images are used to show the picture that he was in terrible suffering and agony. David mentions that enemies cause some of this pain, possibly by their taunts. Verses 8 through 10. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be dismayed and ashamed. David calls all his enemies to leave because he was sure that God had heard his cry. He was assured God had heard his prayer and received it. He was also confident God would answer his prayer with healing. His faith had been once again anchored in the truth of God. With this healing, all his enemies would soon be greatly ashamed. Where are you anchored? What do you depend on in hard times? Psalm chapter 7 has 17 verses. The title that many of you will see in your Bible says, A Shigayon of David which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. Shegeon may mean a poem of intense feelings. This psalm probably has to do with the time when David was hunted down by Saul's men. We do not know anything about Cush, the Benjamite, except from this psalm. Here, we see David pray to God for deliverance from and judgment on his enemies. Verses 1 and 2. O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. Or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. David starts by establishing where his confidence is, in God. David calls on God to deliver him from enemies that are pursuing him and want to tear him to pieces. David knew that if God did not rescue him, none would be able to because only God can deliver. Anyone else is powerless before his strength and will. Verses 3 through 5. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, or have plundered him without cause, was my adversary. Let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life down to the ground. And lay my glory in the dust. Selah. David pleads is innocent or righteous before God. He says that if he had sinned, he wanted God to let his enemies catch him and kill him. David understood what an offense sin was to God. He knew his relationship with God was the most important thing in his life. David knew there was sin in his life. We all have it. And was willing to suffer for any wrong he had committed against another. In the same breath, however, he knew he lived to glorify God, and so faith and grace made him righteous before God. Verses 6 and 7. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries, and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you, and over them return on high. 
David calls the judge of the earth to come in anger against all his enemies, against all those that were pursuing him with an unrighteous motive. He calls God to come in holy wrath, rage, and anger before the people and all their assemblies. I think we need to take a moment here to explain God and anger. We must remember God is 100% holy and righteous, and so his anger is against sin. Sin always offends God and always is offensive to him and his righteousness. Wrath, anger, judgment, and rage are all correct responses to sin in God's righteousness. The response to sin is called righteous anger. God is the only one whose anger is always righteous. We, on the other hand, do not always have a righteous anger. Most, if not all, of our anger is unrighteous. We speak more of anger in the anger section of awkward Christianity in the counseling. Verses 8 and 9. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. The righteous, for the righteous God, tries the hearts and minds. The Lord is a judge, and He will judge all of humanity. He not only judges us on our actions, but on our minds, our intents, our words. Um, Since God is omniscient, He can do that. He is all-knowing. He can judge all because He is capable of doing so. He also has the perfect standard of righteousness, His holiness. David asks for justice, vengeance, against his offenders and against all evil. Evil will come to an end, but the righteous through Christ will come to eternal life. Verse 10. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. David makes a comparison here. To the righteous, God is a shield who saves the upright. He does what is best for them and gives him the most glory and gives himself the most glory. 11 through 13. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. The wicked, on the other hand, are against God, and he righteously judges them. The wicked do not go unnoticed, and God will judge them in his time. But we do not know We do know that God's anger and disgust for sin is before him every day. He is like a warrior towards the one that does not repent of his sin. He sharpens his sword, readies his deadly weapons. He's ready to battle. David gives us an image of God judging and decimating the wicked. Verses 14 to 16. Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out, and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own pate. The wicked are pictured here as pregnant with wickedness. God traps the wicked in their own plans. The wicked attempt to bring evil on someone else, but in the end, they reap the wrong themselves. God himself brings them judgment that fits their crimes. Why is this important? Does this judgment all happen in our time? 
No. Does it happen often? We believe so. We also know that in his time, God will judge every evildoer for their deeds. He is the perfect judge and will punish evil in the right time. Verse 17. I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. The psalm ends with a doxology or a praise to God. David gives praise to God for who he is. He thanks him for being righteous. Can you imagine if we had a God that was mischievous or completely or not completely perfect? He would allow certain sins and not others. He would provide loopholes for the wicked, but not our God, not the true God. He is purely and perfectly holy. He is without sin. He is perfect in all his acts and in his morality, completely righteous and full of glory. There is no sin in him, not even a little bit. Psalm 8 has nine verses. For the choir director on the Giddith, a psalm of David. This is another psalm of David speaking of his amazement that the great God would look upon earth and its people. David begins with a proposition. He then uses the following verses to prove this proposition and finally repeats the proposition at the end as the conclusion. The word Giddith possibly refers to a certain rhythm or tune. Verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. God is the most amazing being. He is glorious and all of creation shows what an awesome creator he is. He is full of splendor and magnificence. He is not just any God, though. He is our Lord. Verse 2. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Babies praise God and his greatness. Don't believe me? Look at their intricacies. Look at how much needs to be exact for them to come to be. See how much delicacy and strength is involved. It very much feels like God is weaving them together from inside the womb. Their very formation and birth is a cry to how amazing and powerful God is. This magnificence shuts the mouths of all adversaries. There is no one that can go against the wonderful evidence of a child. This can be seen in Jesus' life. Matthew 21, 15-16 tells us, Children praised him, and it shut the mouths of the Pharisees. This was right after Jesus had cleansed the temple. God used, and still does use, the weak to silence and confound the strong. Verses 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? David begins to contemplate the vastness of the skies. He begins to look at space, at the stars and the moon, things that take up so much space and still have so much to reveal. David says all this creation, all the vastness and intricacy was made by God's fingers, as if to indicate how minimal an effort it took on God's part. If we remember Genesis, it took mere sentences. In seeing all this, David asks a very logical question. God being infinite, all-powerful, and so grand, what is man in comparison? The word here in Hebrew used for man is enos, which is mortal or weak man. We are specks of dust 
compared to the rest of the universe. Why would God care about humanity? We are nothing. Despite our finiteness, God cares for us and loves us. That is amazing. Yet another praise to an awesome God. Verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. Man was made a little less than God. Some interpreters, like the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, have placed this as a little lower than the angels. In either case, we are lower than both in strength, power, abilities, and many other ways. Yet in time, we will be rulers with God, ruling over others and angels. Hebrews 2.6-8 quotes this portion of scripture when it compares Jesus to the angels showing that angels will in time be below us solely because of Jesus. This shows the reader in Hebrews that Jesus will rule over all things, with mankind as his subjects and princes. He was made a little lower than the angels, like us, to grant salvation. Jesus now is crowned in glory and majesty because he is worthy, and we will be rulers in his kingdom because of his sacrifice for our salvation. Glory to God. Verses 8, sorry, verses 6 through 8. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. All of creation was under our rule. God commanded Adam and Eve to rule the creation, Genesis 1.28. Our rule was given to us by God, and so we were representatives of His rule over the entire universe. Our sin messed this up, but God has brought the option back through His own sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice allowed the original dominion that was lost under Adam to be given to Him as the second Adam, Hebrews 2.8, and He reigns over all from His throne. He will give this dominion to His children and we will reign together with him. 1 Corinthians 15, 25-27, Ephesians 1, 22, 2 Timothy 2, 12, and Revelation 5, 10. Verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The psalm closes with praise to God for his greatness and the same admiration he had made originally. Do you praise God for his greatness? Do you see his greatness in creation, in the Bible, in your life? Psalm chapter 9 uh, has 20 verses. The title is For the Choir Director on Muth Laban, a Psalm of David. Some have said that this psalm could have been originally one psalm with Psalm 10. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, shows them as one. They have similar forms. Almost every stanza begins with a different Hebrew letter of the alphabet. Uh, they have similar wording and they seem to place an emphasis on mortal man. But there is good reason to separate them. Psalm 9 is a song of thanksgiving, while Psalm 10 is a complaint about godless men. Psalm 9 was written by David, and it is set to the tune of the death of the son, Muth Laban. We honestly do not know what this means. David praises God for his judgment, and then asks God to remove his affliction so he can praise more. Verses 1 and 2. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. 
David gives thanks to God. He says he would tell everyone he meets of God's greatness. He would praise the Most High wholeheartedly by thanksgiving, joy, singing, and telling others of his wonders. He would praise in anticipation of his deliverance. He had confidence in the power and wonder of God. Verses 3 through 6. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you, for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, and you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. David records the reason for his praise. His enemies have been judged. God had seen David as righteous, and all those that were wicked were rightly demolished. The wicked had nowhere to run. God had judged righteously, and the enemies had been destroyed. David uses some strong poetic words here, saying that the evil had completely vanished, and all of them, even their memory, had been destroyed forever. David felt as if God had done that for him, that his enemies had disappeared before the judging hand of the mighty God. Has this completely happened? Have all the enemies of God been destroyed, or even all the enemies of David? No, not yet, but the day will come. Verses 7 through 10. But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. David knew, and we can be assured, that God is the one true God. He will live on forever. No one and nothing can stop him. He is the perfect judge, and he will judge the world in his perfect holiness. God reigns, and he will establish his righteousness on this earth forever. The psalmist specifically speaks of the oppressed, who are basically those that are most frequently abused and ignored in society. Those that are oppressed can come to the Lord for protection. Those who know who God is will come to Him for salvation and refuge in their times of trouble. God does not judge based on status or power because He is the highest and the richest. God judges the heart. God has not and never will forsake of His own those that seek after Him. Verses 11 and 12 Sing praises to the Lord who dwell in Zion. Declare among the peoples his deeds, for he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. The psalmist calls us to sing praises to God, to tell others of his greatness. God requires blood from the killer, and he is the avenger of blood. God desires all of humanity to understand the sanctity of human life. In other words, every life is precious before God. The wrongful taking of a life puts God to action against that person. God does not forget the forgotten, but will judge those who oppress them in this life or in the next. Verses 13 and 14. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me, you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. David calls on God to have grace on him. He calls God to see the abuse and the desire for death his enemies had against him, 
they hated him. One of the reasons David gives for God to save him is so that he could praise God for the delivery at the tabernacle in Jerusalem. Zion usually refers to Jerusalem, but sometimes it refers to heaven. Notice the two gates mentioned, one of death and one of life. Verses 15 and 16. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. In the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. Hagion Selah. The wicked were caught by their own trap. God so arranged it that when they set up their plans to harm another, they instead harmed themselves. God had destroyed the wicked and made himself known to David and the world. His judgment to all is perfect in time and in measure. Hagion is a musical term that directs the musicians to make a joyful celebration. And then Selah gives the pause for effect and meditation. Verses 17 and 18. The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. David gives us a contrast. The wicked, those who reject and ignore God, will go to the grave. They have no hope. The needy, those that desire God and His protection, will never be forgotten, and their hope will last forever. Verses 19 and 20. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. The psalm finishes with David entreating God to judge the nations. He asks God not to let the unsaved prevail, but to put them in fear. David wanted to remind the nations that they were not almighty. They were only mere men. We need to be reminded of that sometimes, especially when our plans do not go the way we want them to. God is God, not us. We are human, mere dust in the universe. We must praise God even when life does not go the way we want it to, because He is in control. He is doing what is best for His children, to be more holy, and most importantly, He is doing what will give Him the most glory. Psalm 10, 18 verses for this psalm. It is a prayer for God not to delay His help for the afflicted. The psalmist describes the wicked and their power, but the psalmist also knew this power paled in comparison to God's. So, he asks God to rise and avenge the oppressed. Verse 1. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The writer begins with what many ask when something is going wrong. They question, where is God? Why does he seem so far away? Many forget God is near, even in hard times, but it is harder to understand this because we are in pain. God is there, even in the pain and storms of life, and even in the storms, we can praise Him. We need to trust His work and will, even to our deaths, because it will bring Him the most glory, and we trust it is what will bring our own good in the end. Verses 2-7 through In pride the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted, Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. 
As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. David gives us the character of the wicked oppressor. They have pride. In that pride, they pursue and plot against the defenseless. They boast of their sinful plans and desires. They are so greedy that they curse the Lord. The praise meant for God has turned inward. They only praise themselves. In their pride and arrogance, they rule out the possibility of God. They conclude there is no God. This is the same comment that the fool makes in Psalm 14.1. This wicked person believes he will prosper in all he does. He believes that if there is a God, his judgments are far away from my world. He keeps God at a distance. He laughs at his enemy and at any that try to change his ways. He is full of cursing, lies, and oppression. His tongue is used for his own gain or his own entertainment. He does not fear man or God. His only focus is himself. Verses 8 through 11. He sits in the lurking places of the village. In the hiding places he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face, he will never see it. The wicked lies in the dark places, waiting to kill the innocent. He acts as a stealthy lion, watching for the right person, waiting for the right time, bringing together the right trap. His victims are taken away, like prey in a lion's mouth, or fish in a fisherman's net. These awful men take advantage of the weak. And the whole time, they believe God does not see them. They even think that God does not care for the righteous. They mistake God's patience with evil for a lack of interest in justice. Verses 12 to 15. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, You will not require it. You have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. David makes a cry to God to not forget the weak and oppressed. The wicked believe God will not repay their acts, but God does see their actions and will take matters into his hands in his time and in his way. The oppressed believe in and depend on God. He has been known as the helper of the orphan. David pleads with God to break the wicked power, an arm was representative of power, and remove them from existence. Verses 16 to 18. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart and you will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. The psalm closes with confidence that God is the true king and God of all. Many nations have been removed and placed in God's hands. Throughout his word, we know he has a heart for the oppressed, the orphan and the humble. He hears them and acts on their part. The wicked will be judged in God's time. 
in this life or the next or in both. The wicked will not remain a terror forever. God will remove, remove them in his time. Now, this is important. This should be comforting if you're a Christian. God is in charge, and he can move entire nations as he pleases. So my situation is before his feet, and he will do whatever needs to be done and move whoever needs to be moved for him to give himself glory and to do what is best for his children. He hears our prayers. Now, this does not mean that he always answers our prayers in the way we want them. The wicked and sin itself will not remain forever. There is a time rapidly coming that God will rule physically on earth and sin will be dealt with and gone forever. 